Did you know that you can find just about all of our podcast episodes? We've done more than 60 now on our website. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, Brooke Jarvis, David Gran, Tom Juneau, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I talked with Jeff Perlman. Perlman is the author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. The book takes a deep dive into the United States Football League, which existed from 1983 to 1985. The league existed when Perlman was a kid and he was in love with it. It's a book that Perlman has called a labor of love. The opportunity to go back in time, it's one of the great gifts of this whole thing. The opportunity to go back in time and write about things you love and really find out what happened. Like, dig, 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 dig. It's, my, it's just my favorite part of the whole thing. Perlman interviewed 430 people for this book. Only two people with ties to the USFL that he reached out to refused to talk to him. One of those people was Donald Trump. Trump was the owner of the New Jersey Generals in 1984 and 1985. Perlman was doing the reporting for this book during the 2016 presidential election season. One thing he started realizing was that Trump was making the same types of promises as a presidential candidate as he did as a USFL owner. That includes the time he signed quarterback Doug Flutie to a huge contract and then sent a letter to the other owners of the league telling them they all had to actually help pay for Flutie themselves. Passes prologue a million different ways with the USFL. I kept thinking during the campaign, I wonder why the Clinton campaign isn't using this. And I think there's this, it's too big of a having to explain the whole thing for whatever, a 30-second political point. But it's pretty freaking jarring. Football for a Buck is Perlman's eighth book. He's written books about the 1986 New York Mets, about Brett Favre, and about the Los Angeles Lakers Showtime years. He currently writes a weekly column for The Athletic and is a former senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He's also written for ESPN.com, Bleacher Report, Newsday, The Nashville Tennessean, and many other publications. Perlman is also the guest editor for this year's edition of the Best American Sports Writing. The series editor of that annual anthology is Glenn Stout, who has twice been a guest on the podcast. As usual, we've linked to a lot of Perlman's work. You can find that at www. GangryThePodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Jeff. Ah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on the publication of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. It seems uh, to me like the book is getting a lot of love online. How's that going for you? I mean, I'm working really, really, really hard to promote it because um, nobody really, you know, I was told repeatedly, nobody wants a USFL book. And it's not an obvious topic in the way sort of far over, you know, the 86 Mets or whatever. So it's been, I've been busting my ass on like ever before. Um, and it's been, it's been rewarding. It really has It's been yeah. rewarding. Yeah. I know you've mentioned on Twitter multiple times that this book was really just a labor of love. Can you, can you talk about why that was? Yeah. I mean, you know, my favorite subjects to write are nostalgia based 
for book wise. Uh, I love I love digging into nostalgia. Um, it's kind of funny. My least favorite book I ever wrote was about Roger Clemens, and I had no nostalgia for Roger Clemens. And the USFL is almost the opposite of that. Where I grew up loving the USFL, was a huge fan of the league. It came and went in a flash. I remember uh, being a kid in Mailpack, New York, and the uh, going to the Mailpack Public Library and seeing Herschel Walker on the cover of SI uh, in a general's uniform, and just opening the magazine and seeing all the helmets. And you know, mm-hmm. pissing my pants over the Birmingham Stallions and the Tampa Bay Bandits, and this is awesome, you know. And and the opportunity to go back in time—it's one of the great gifts of this whole thing. The opportunity to go back in time and write about things you loved and really find out what happened, like dig, 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 dig deep. It's my—it's just my favorite part of the whole thing. Yeah. Can you give a quick like synopsis of what the book is about? Yeah. Well, the USFL was a spring football league. It was a rival to the NFL. It existed from 1983 to 85. It was a great idea. It really was a great idea. It was spring football. There were regional drafts mainly. They had one general draft and then regional. So team in Philadelphia would be uh, loading up with players from Pitt and Penn State. Sort of, you know, Tampa Bay is having teams from Florida, you know, teams from Florida and Florida State players from Florida and Florida State. And it was a great idea, and it did really well. It started swiping players to the NFL wanted. Herschel Walker, Craig James, Reggie Collier, on and on. And then uh, it kind of started getting greedy. And even though it was getting marquee guys, Reggie White, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Gazillion others, uh, it started spending way too much money, spiraled out of control. A certain future president owned one of the teams and kind of ruined the league. So so one of the things I've been struck by, you know, as, as I read the book, is just the sheer volume of reporting. Uh, it, it seems like every uh, paragraph, you're, uh, you know, you, you've got a comment from another person that you talk to. Um, can you talk about like w- when you knew this was ac- this was actually going to be a book? Um, what what was the first step that you took uh, reporting wise? Uh, I I would say the first thing I did is I per- I went on Google and got out the media guide. So I um, I literally like probably spent a couple hundred dollars and um, just and just you know bought media guides and then you you start tracking people, mm-hmm. tracking and tracking and tracking and that's a huge part of it. And then you start digging. I'm lucky. Uh, I have friends at Sports Illustrated, and SI had a, has a really good library, so I start digging through clips, old clips. And, um, yeah, so it's really just a, it's like a, like an all, all points bulletin. Everyone's trying to find, I'm trying to find everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not just about finding Steve, Steve Young and Jim Kelly. It's about trying to find everyone. And um, that's my favorite part of the whole process, is the digging and finding the backup center for the Oklahoma Outlaws or the fifth defensive back for the Arizona Wranglers. But that's the joy in it all. Mm-hmm. How many people did you talk to total? Do you know? It was about four thirty, about four hundred thirty. Yeah. When did you When did you actually start reporting? Started reporting about two years ago. I had a year to do the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I had a year to do it because I wasn't getting very good money for it. You can't take two years, which I usually do when you're making you know not good money. So. Um, I just gave myself a year, but I, I mean, I went hard on this one. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want it to suffer from less time. So I just doubled up on how hard I was working. Mm-hmm. When, um, when you, when you do a, a project like this and, and it's a big project too, obviously, um, what's your, what's your normal process, um, in terms of, you know, note taking and, and, you know, uh, then somehow organizing all that stuff and, and to the point where then you start writing. Can you talk, can you talk a little bit about that process for you? Yeah, I mean, I usually get, so if I have a year, it's basically, I'll go, uh, 
eight months of reporting nonstop. Mm-hmm. And then I'll take four months and write. And a few things I need to do, I print everything out, which is not great for trees, but I do recycle everything at the end. But I need to print every interview out. I organize nice things chronologically. Um, I make a word file for everybody. So I buy the Oklahoma Outlaws Media Guide from 1984, let's just say hypothetically. I make a word file for every single person in there, every player, every coach, every administrator, every ball boy, everything. And then I will uh, go about the process of tracking them down. That might involve using a Nexus Lexus search. Mm-hmm. It might involve just uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. Sometimes you get lucky. Facebook has been a big help. And then it's just really tracking them, tracking them, tracking them. Oftentimes one guy leads to three and three leads to five. And, oh, you know, you need to reach uh, Jim. He's actually, he works in my school where I teach, you know, a lot of that. And uh, it's really, I mean, it's maddening. I basically sit at my kitchen table and, and track people down. I was telling my wife, I think I would be a pretty freaking good agent or investigator at this point right, because right. you do learn all the tricks of the trade. And, and I'm not afraid to knock on a door, or just show up randomly, or it just kind of comes up the turf. Mm-hmm. Was this something, did you find that um, that when you approach people, um, they were excited to talk about the USFL? Or was there anybody who was like, I don't want to talk about that? Or, um, yeah, what was that? What was their reception like when, when somebody comes knocking on the door and say, hey, let's talk about the USFL? It was amazing. It was unlike anything. You know, like, you do a book on Walter Payton, let's just say. Walter Payton died at 46. Mm-hmm. And there's a legacy to preserve. And some people, understandably, completely understandably, are going to be very, very protective of that legacy. And I mean, even if you get them to interview, they're going to walk cautiously. Again, totally understandable. Because if that was a league, it was, it'd be like doing a story about um, someone's freshman dorm in college, you know, 30 years later. And yeah, you need to talk to this guy. He had the best parties. You need to talk to this guy because uh, blah, blah, blah. That's sort of what this was. So Trump didn't talk, not surprising. Um, he does not like the subject, which I can understand. Uh, and Herschel Walker didn't talk. Otherwise, it was pretty much everyone I caught talked. Wow, wow. Um, the uh, the writing-wise, uh, did you, I mean, did you know going in that this was going to be something that was going to be pretty much chronological uh, to take care of, or...? I mean, it wasn't a conscious decision, but it, it it would be weird if I started with the middle season. And then, I mean, right, the right, basic right. chronological with about a million different different branches. Right. That's kind of how these books go. You know, like you're you're writing about Brett Favre, maybe, and, and you know, to talk about the last book. And, and maybe uh, he, his coach in Atlanta was Jerry Glanville. Well, all of a sudden, you're going on this sort of mini detour mm-hmm. where you're talking about Jerry Glanville's life. And then you kind of return back to the chronology. And that's sort of what this was. There was a lot of detours and turning left and turning right in this crazy moment and this interesting moment. But ultimately, you sort of adhere to there was a, a planning, there was a league, and the league died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I like how it's also kind of built into the, the is it the, th- the three acts or um, uh, seasons or you have you have a, a, a delineation between those seasons as well. And then it kind of jumps all, you know, all over the place between the teams. But, but that's probably what it was like at the time. I mean, it was just this crazy thing that was happening um this uh so this this is your uh eighth book is that correct yeah um has the reporting and writing gotten any easier <laughs> no harder if anything number one um you i, I mean i kind of say like i think i'm a better i'm definitely better at writing books now than i was uh when i started just because i didn't know what the hell i was doing mm-hmm. you know and and yeah, I don't know. It's kind of weird. My first book ever uh, was a Bad Guys One about the 86 Mets. That came out 
Urian. I was like 15 years ago, which is so weird. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have any expectations. And I just wanted the book to be good. And, and you kind of did it in your free time. And you work hard, but who the hell knows? And now, you know, in my 40s, it's, it's much more, all right, the last book did this. I want this book to do this. Mm-hmm. Or also, you can't do what you did before. Like, you can't just write the same book over and over again. Um, so just, it just, your expectations become much higher for yourself. Mm-hmm. And also, your skills are better. Like, you actually know how to write a book. I know how to write a book now. So I want to learn new things. I want to get new techniques. I want to try this, and I want to try that. So what I once was a very basic and sort of naive approach to writing books I mean, it's like anything. It's like working on a car the first time. Maybe you just know how to change the oil. But then after owning a car for 10 years and doing your own maintenance, you want to install a new engine. And it's much more complicated in a way than it was from the beginning because you just you view the challenge as more sort of daunting and, and you want to be great. Mm-hmm. So I just want the books to be really good, you know? And I, I, think, I don't think I knew how to do that earlier. Um. What, what was that the... sounds way too self-indulgent. I'm not <laughs> saying this is rocket science or you know heart surgery. I just mean my own expectations have grown as I've done this longer and longer. That's all I mean. And I think you know it's different for every single person too, right? I mean, every single person who has written a book um, then comes at book number two a little bit differently than book number one, and, and on and on. So, well, um, also, just what are your standards for the book? I mean, right. when I wrote uh, the Brett Favre book, it might have been the Brett Favre book. I was on the bestseller list with. Snooki, you know, <laughs> now Snooki, I'm pretty sure, didn't put as much into her book as I put into mine. <laughs> right. So it sort of depends on what kind of book you write and what you want out of it and how much it needs you. Like the Snooki, who the hell knows if she, I, I mean, maybe she read her own book. Right. For me, these things are like, you can talk to my wife or kids about it. Like all they hear about is the USFL for the year I'm working on it. And I become obsessed. And it's, it's not just about, this is what I always tell my, pe- my students when I teach journalism. It's not just a soda. It's a Diet Coke, half empty. The can was a little tinted, uh, dented. It was silver. Like the details, the details, the details. You become addicted to the details, right. and it really can drive you crazy. But it also makes the book. The uh, you 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 started the book out with that prologue. Um, it actually starts with um a, a trip that you took your daughter to uh, Disney World or Disneyland, uh-huh. correct? Disney World. Uh, Disney, Disney World. World, and uh, and then that kind of segues to. You know, you're making that comparison as you know that's how you excited you were when the US, when you discovered the USFL. Um, did you did you know going in that that was going to have to be the way that you wanted to start to start that book? No, I uh, I'm weird. I'm uh, I'm kind of weird. I just sit down and start writing, mm-hmm. and that popped in my head. I knew um, I probably knew I was going to write about you know like uh, it starts with me in a in my English class as a senior. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Right. And my teacher was signing this paper, and I, you know, I said I want to do the USFL, and he looked at me like I was a crack addict, and and ended up writing forty pages instead of twenty. And I, I do think there's something full circle about that that I just, on a personal level, really love. Like I love. My wife said something the other day that really did it for me. I was a little down. The book's hard. It's hard to promote. It came out the same day as Bob Woodward's book. Like that's that's a beast, you know. That's a beast. Uh, because it sucks all the oxygen out of everything else. And, and I was kind of down, and she said to me, she's like, you know what? Nobody was talking about the U.S. of L. before this book came out. Right. It's not like five days ago, everyone was having these chatterings about who was better, the Denver Gold or the San Antonio Gunslingers. So 
Like people, it doesn't matter if it's 10 people or, you know, 10 million people. Like people are actually having dialogues about the USFL. Right. And that to me, that takes me back to being a kid and loving the freaking USFL. And there's, there is satisfaction in knowing in 1990, 28 years ago, I wrote this paper about the USFL. And now, as an adult, I have a book out about the USFL. I kind of love that. So that was, that's what the information uh, yeah, I, personal fulfillment. I will have to tell you that on the same day of last week, I received in my mail your book and Bob Woodward's book <laughs> in the same package. So, but yeah. I've, but I've read, cool. but I've read well, yours I first. So, record too. I, I kind of make jokes about it. I love Bob Woodward. I mean, Bob right. Woodward's a hero. So there's no, there's zero percent animosity. The guy's a superstar. It just, it's, it's not, it's not terrible. Like they're not the same books. They're not the same category. It's not the end. Of, it's not like I wrote the Barry Bonds book and game of shadows came out two weeks before my Bonds book. Yeah. That was devastating. Right. This is just, uh, not perfect timing. Right. Right. <laughs> Although they do have a similar character involved. We'll talk a, a little do. bit about that here in a bit. Um, when you, obviously when you started this, you knew a ton about the USFL. Um, uh, right. Because you were, um, uh, I think you're maybe a couple years older than me, but I remember the USFL a little bit. I was just getting into football at the time at that age. Um, but truthfully, I didn't really know a ton about it, but I'm imagining that you did. I mean, you wrote that paper in high school. Yeah. Um, was there anything that you like you learned brand new that was completely and utterly surprising um, in the process of the reporting? Oh, here's the thing. You write a book proposal for a book and you pretend you know what the book is going to be about. But if you're halfway uh, determined reporter, you have no real idea. You know, so I wrote my proposal and I talked about the USFL and this and that. But I didn't know one one millionth of what I know now. Mm -hmm. I'm being sincere about that. Not one one millionth. I knew it was a league I loved and it was quirky. I knew there'd surely be good stories because there are always good stories when you have all the 80s and upstarts. I didn't know. No, I, didn't, I knew very little comparatively to what I know now. Yeah. What was what was the most interest, interesting thing you learned? That's probably hard. Oh, my question. God. <laughs> I mean, there's a, a craziest story. I've now told it a hundred times, and it's still it's one of those stories that I'll be able to tell for the next 30 years and never really get tired of is um, there was a defensive lineman named Greg Fields from the LA Express. His nickname was Big Paper because when he was a, a rookie with the Baltimore Colts in 1979, um, he was the lowest paid guy. He was a free agent out of Grambling. And he used to call, there's a guy, Barry Krause. He was their first round pick out of Alabama. And he would call him Big Paper because he was making out big money. And Barry Krause called him Big Paper back. So he became known as Big Paper. And the next year, Big Paper was cut by the Atlanta Falcons, but he refused to leave their dorm rooms. And they had to get an armed guard to escort him out because he refused to leave. So he was done in the NFL. I and mean, that's kind of a death knell for you. But right. he, he signed with the LA Express. Played 83, 84, they get a new coach, John Hadle. John Hadle causing Greg Fields to cut him. Greg Fields reaches across the table and punches him in the face. <laughs> they end up having to pull him out. He's yelling, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. They hire Liberace's bodyguard away from Liberace to protect the coach. I mean, it's the craziest mm -hmm. stuff ever. He starts tracing Greg Fields' car, and Greg Fields is still calling it death threats, and he's showing up at games. I mean, it's it's beyond insane. And uh, finally, and this is the weirdness of the USO. Everyone knows this stuff is going on. It's not a secret within the USO circles. But the gunslingers wanted a pass rusher. They actually signed Greg Fields to San Antonio uh, gunslingers, knowing he had punched his coach and was calling him death threats. And he goes to San Antonio. And in 1985, the gunslingers' owner stops paying players. So Greg Fields follows him home in his car. 
And when he gets out in front of his mansion, Greg Fields greets him, and he has a baseball bat in his hand. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he says, I want to get paid. And he's like, wait here. And the owner of the Gunslingers in the game, named Clinton, a guy named Clinton Mangus, comes back out with a bag filled with $17,000 in cash. It says, are we good? And Fields is like, we're good. Oh, my. And he's never seen again. Wow. No one knew his whereabouts. Nobody knew his whereabouts. No one could find him. No one could tell me where he was. I called Gramley. I called different teammates. And my son and I, who's only nine, went on an on all-out search to find Greg Fields. And we tracked him down. And we ended up in Sacramento, California, in a food court at a shopping mall, eating Cold Stone Creamery with Greg Fields as he spit Cherry Jubilee ice cream all over me. Oh, God. That's, that's fantastic. Um, that's pretty great. Um, Hey, we're going to take a short break. Um, when we return, we'll continue talking with Jeff Perlman about his new book, football for a buck. This is gangry, the podcast. Gangry, the podcast is brought to you by the college of arts and sciences at Fairfield university, which grounds students in the 500 year old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis, and I'm talking with Jeff Perlman, the author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. This is Jeff's eighth book. Uh, Jeff, one thing I noticed when I was reading the book were all the parallels of, of some things we're facing today in this country. Uh, and one of the things that really struck out uh, early in the book is the, what, what happened with Herschel Walker and why he wanted to go to the USFL. Um, you know, partly because he, he didn't want to play one more year in the NCAA. And, and, you know, it got me thinking about, you know, whether or not NCAA athletes should be paid and all that type of stuff. Can you talk about, about more, a little bit more in depth about why Herschel made the jump uh, and, pretty much uh, started really scaring the NFL? Yeah, well, he, um, he, he won the Heisman Trophy as a junior. And at the time, 1983, you, uh, you couldn't come out as a junior in the NFL. You only took seniors. He's from Wrightsville, Georgia. He's from a very poor family. He wanted to come out. They're like, I have an opportunity to make money to support my family, and now's the time to do it. He was correct. And uh, he reached out when the USFL was new. He had his agent reach out to the USFL. He reached out to the USFL. Um, and... Uh, the USFL was really conflicted about it at first because, again, the NFL did not do this. And what would it say, uh, you know, if, 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 you know, he came out early? And what would it say to, the, to college sports if the USFL took him? Would college uh, teams allow, him on, uh, allow the USFL on their campus? You know, would it, would it, would it, did it feel like they were leeching guys? You know, it was really a concern. But ultimately, Walker wanted to come out. It was a huge name. He would give instant legitimacy to the uh, USFL. So the, uh, the USFL gave him a, a deal, and they said, you can go to any team you want, and you want to go to New York, New Jersey, so he signed with the Generals. This is before Donald Trump was the owner, actually. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named J. Walter Duncan. And it's funny, J. Walter Duncan was this sort of old Oklahoma oil man, and he went down to meet with Herschel Walker and bring the official contract. Herschel was still in Athens, Georgia, 
living with his girlfriend. And um, at one point, it was Jay Walter Duncan, who was well into his 60s, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker's girlfriend, in Herschel Walker's little studio apartment playing Space Invaders on this thing called the Atari 2600 that the owner of the Generals found really quaint. Right. <laughs> I, you know, and when, um, when it was kind of leaked that he was going to leave, he kind of changed his mind. Um, you know, after he told his coach, uh, but you know, he got ripped by the coach and then there's like even state senators like ripping on Herschel for, you know, violating some code. Um, uh, it just, I mean, it just reminded me a lot of what we see going on, um, you know, with, with some athletes today and that the USFL in a lot of ways was at least offering this, this change of pace to give uh, some players chances that they wouldn't have otherwise. I actually think it was, um, it was really gross. I don't, I don't write that much about that. I mean, I do write about it, but not a ton. But if you think about it, here's this young African-American man in the deep South, you know, and his family is dirt poor. And he wants to leave college early, uh, a college system that, you know, milked him to the bone, you know, wasn't paying him. And he was, how much money did Hurst Walker make, Georgia? I mean, it's got to be in the high millions. And he wants to come out and, you know, the state Senate, and the state assemblymen are ripping this kid for doing so mm-hmm. in the deep South. I mean, there's something really gross about that. All white, all male at the time. There's something really gross and disturbing about that. Um, the U.S. Lavelle did a lot of things. If you want to talk about sort of, in a way, showing empathy and showing compassion that the NFL did not have and college sports didn't have. I mean, Doug Williams of the Tampa Bay Band, uh, Buccaneers mm-hmm. is a right. really good NFL quarterback who happened to play for a sort of racist asshole owner, Hugh Colmerhouse. And they would not budge on Doug Williams' money. He was, he was a starting NFL quarterback for four or five years at that point, I think four years. And he was, I think, the 45th, 46th highest paid quarterback. And nobody, he couldn't do anything about it. Well, the Oklahoma Outlaws come along and say, we're going to make you a really high paid quarterback. And he felt loved. The other thing is, USFL, so there was a, for a brief time, there was going to be a team in San Diego. And the owner was uh, Bill Tatham, who ended up owning the Oklahoma Outlaws. And Dan Fouts was a free agent, the great Chargers quarterback. Mm -hmm. And Dan Fouts agreed to a deal to play in the USFL. Um, And he he had a meeting with the owner of the the soon-to-be San Diego team in the USFL. And he kind of expressed some conflicts, uh, conflicting emotions about jumping. And the owner of the USFL team said to him, listen, you guys made a really close to the Super Bowl last year. This is when they lost to Cincinnati in the AFC Championship. He said, take the offer we made back to the Chargers. And if they match it, stay in San Diego. Stay with the Chargers. I think that's important to you. Do it. There's no way the NFL would ever do anything like that. Right. You know, there's no way. And then the one other thing the USFL did, this was a time period when mobile African-American quarterbacks of the Lamar Jackson, RG3, mm-hmm. Russell Wilson, you know, those guys were not getting shots in the NFL. They were being converted to defensive backs right, right. and to running backs. And the USFL at that time taking guys like Walter Lewis from Alabama, Reggie Collier from Southern Miss, and the other league was telling them, we, you need to move positions. And they would privately say, these guys don't have the intellect to play. You know, real disgusting thing. And the USFL was opening their arms to them and letting them be quarterbacks. People forget about that. Right. right. Another thing that I found humorous was uh, George Allen, who, uh, I'll be honest, I had no idea who he was when I started reading this book. Uh, but as I read it, I'm, I'm thinking, like, this guy is doing – the stuff that the New England Patriots have been accused of doing, but he was doing it a long time ago. I would say times a thousand. Right. I would actually say, take the Patriots, anything you've accused him of. I mean, he was, George Allen put a double-sided glass. Right. 
in the visitors' locker room, so he could see what is going on in their locker room. George Allen, my favorite thing ever. He was the owner. He was the uh, coach of the Chicago Blitz. Their first ever game in the USFL, the first ever game in the USFL, was Chicago Blitz at the Washington Federals. George Allen, in the uh, in the days leading up to that game, sent two employees with the Blitz to Washington, outfitted them in USFL windbreakers, and gave them video cameras. Had them tell the Washington sort of front office that they were sent there by the USFL because they were going around the league and recording practices. Brought the video back to the Chicago Blitz. They knew every play the Washington Federals were going to run. The first play in USFL history, first offensive play, is Washington halfback Craig James sweeping to the left and getting smothered by the Chicago Blitz, who knew exactly what was coming. Right. And that was all George Allen. Right. Crazy. Right. Um, so uh, Donald Trump, uh, our president, comes up uh, in the book quite a lot um, because in many ways, you know, um, he's one of the primary reasons, if not the primary reason, that uh, that the USFL uh, failed. When you just started out reporting, how much did you know about his involvement in the league and, and ultimately what all happened? So I knew a lot because I grew up a Generals fan. And the funny thing is, I've had this discussion with other people. I'm not a Donald Trump fan as president. I'm very honest about that. I'm not. When I was growing up, I thought he was the best owner in the USFL. Mm -hmm. And players who played for him thought he was the best owner in the USFL. And in a very micro way, they were correct. He was spending money on the team. He was bringing in big-name NFL guys, Brian Seif and Gary Barbro, Doug Flutie. Um, He was trying to get Lawrence Taylor. Mm -hmm. He was trying to get Mark Gassineau. He almost hired Don Shula. So as a fan of that team... He was paying his bills, and he was flying guys, you know, uh, charter, and he was great. So that's sort of what I knew. I also knew he ruined the league uh, or took it toward, toward fall. Mm-hmm. I did not realize until I started really researching the book the sort of duplicity of his actions and uh, the dishonesty and a lot of really nasty things sort of in the name of getting an NFL franchise. So I knew he was not good for the league as a whole. I did not know how bad he was for the league. You were you reporting this during the ele- the election season? Yeah, it was very weird. It was so weird. I kept saying to my wife, "This is a, this is passive prologue." I mean, the classic example, the best example I can give you, um, because it's just bonkers. So Donald Trump agreed to a uh, he, he gave Doug Flutie out of Boston College the highest contract in pro football history. It was a six year, eight point two ish million dollar deal. First three years guaranteed. Uh, very unusual. No matter what happened in the U.S. about the money was guaranteed. He told his colleagues with the generals, don't worry, we're going to sign Flutie, but the other owners are going to pay for it. And he wrote a letter, literally, to the U.S. of commissioner saying, I've done us an amazing favor by signing Doug Flutie. This is a gift to the league. And the other owners should also pay for Doug Flutie's contract. I'm researching this, man, literally, as he is talking about how Mexico is going to pay for this wall. Right. I mean... At the same time, I am watching the news and Donald Trump saying, we're going to build a wall, Mexico's going to pay for it. I'm reading about him telling the other owners, we're going to sign Doug Flutie and you guys are going to pay for it. It was crazy. Then there's, I mean, equal, he, uh, he had a, a rival in the league named John Bassett, the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits. And John Bassett just thought Donald Trump was a complete con man and a fraud the whole time. Mm-hmm. And this was, he was his sort of enemy. He was very anti-going to fall. John Bassett in 1984, late 84, the, after the second season, um, was uh, diagnosed with brain cancer. He had two spots on his brain. And as soon as that happened, Donald Trump just walked all over him. Mm-hmm. Just walked all over him. Great. My enemy's out of the way. 
to hell with him. I'm moving forward. You know, John McCain, diagnosed with brain cancer, the one guy in the Republican Party willing to stand up to him. It's like passes prologue a million different ways with the USFL. I kept thinking during the campaign, I wonder why the Clinton campaign isn't using this. And I think there's just, it's too big of a having to explain the whole thing right. for whatever, a 30-second political point. Right. But it's pretty freaking jarring when you look at it. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, w- let's move on a little bit. You've um, you've been, you've had a pretty busy year, I think, um, because you're also the editor uh, of Best American Sports Writing this year, uh, working with uh, Glenn Stout's series. Um, can, can you talk about what that's been like? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's, uh, it's cool. You know, you're basically picking what you enjoy the most, you know, and what stories really struck you and what stories did you like. And, you know, Glenn sends you a bunch of stories without bylines. And then there'd be stories I read throughout the year that I, I really liked or stories that someone would say to me, Hey, this one's really good. You should check this out. Um, it's one thing that's kind of funny about it all is like, uh, one of the criticisms of past years is, oh, this guy played favorites, or this guy, he picked all his friends, or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't want to do that. Like, I really didn't want to do it. It's almost like I've coached my son's baseball team, Little League team, and, you know, he wasn't the ninth best player, but I would hit him ninth a lot, right. just because that's what you do. So um, it's in your head. That's in your head. And, um, and I just read, there's some really great writing, and it introduced me a lot, a lot of writers I'd never heard of before, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yeah, I was going to, yeah, I was going to ask, um, you know, what, you know, I think, what is in your mind the state of sports writing right now? I mean, what, what do you think? I think it is in a weird place. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to remember, so I came up with Sports Illustrated in the night. I started a newspaper, the Tennessee, and then I went to Sports Illustrated in 96. And at the time, SI, you could make the argument, I think you could make the argument the writing was as strong as ever. You had these guys who were just, Rick Riley and Steve Russian and Lee Montville and Bill Mack, and it was just a murderer's row of great, great writers, name writers, who people knew by name. And if someone, one of those guys, I'm not including me in this at all, if those guys showed up at a press box or at an event, it was like, holy crap, Bill Mack is here. Holy crap, that's Riley. You know, like they were, they weren't celebrities, but they were celebrities within writing. Right. Um, I feel like it's harder and harder to find places that let people write at length. Um, at long length and you know Bleacher Report's still doing it which is great SI's still doing it but less but it's great but it's harder to find Um, and the other thing is everyone's just wrestling first of all with the decline of newspaper and number two do game stories matter in the internet age do you really need a story in tomorrow's whatever telling me the details of Matt's Braves when I can watch a video of it in eight seconds read the box score in two seconds find out everything that happened immediately so it doesn't like there's a lot of there used to be really great game writing and writing a great game story is a real art um you just don't see it that much anymore and i I don't think that's wrong people just don't know what to do with them yeah we talk a great deal i have a sports journalism class um here at fairfield university and we talk a great deal about what's the point do is there a reason to write a game story um given that anybody who's a fan is going to know exactly what happened in that game as soon as it's over Um, and i love game stories i actually love game stories i love reading them um I do. I love reading. I think, I bet if you asked me in my life, have I watched more games or read about more games? I know I've read about far more games than I've watched because I just love the language and the imagery and trying to picture what's going on. And I grew up as a kid. No one in my family cared about sports. I was the only one who did. So sitting at the table, we'd all read our sections of the newspaper. 
I've been reading the New York Times and reading the stories about what happened in the Jets game. And maybe I didn't watch it, but I read about it. So I still love the game story. Right. When did you know you wanted to be a sports writer? Uh, I was fairly young. I um, Morrison. I wrote for my, I wrote for the Lakeview Echo, Lakeview Elementary School, <laughs> uh, when I was in like second grade, and I was a sports editor in my high school newspaper. And I interned one summer during my, I interned two summers, but after my, my junior year of high of high school, there's a local newspaper in Cross River, New York, called the Patent Trader. It does not exist anymore. And the sports editor was a guy named Joe Lombardi, and he uh, he let me intern, and he would buy me. He would let me cover high school events and do profiles of different guys. And in return, he would take me out to the Mount Kisco Deli every two weeks or so for, uh, for food. That was my pay. And I just, I love that I was in the middle of sports and that I was there. Um, so I think that was really a, a, a kick for me. Yeah. Was that. Yeah. Well, uh, I know uh, you've had a busy year. Do you have any plans for what's coming up next? I mean, I have a book I started. I'm real paranoid about saying the subject, so I'm I'm going to abstain. It's nothing personal. Right. My um, my dream dream book is to write a Tupac Shakur biography, and that might be a harder deal to get even than the USFL. But I just think it's a great, compelling story, and it hasn't been done that well yet. So um, hopefully down the line that happens. Well, uh, good luck on that. And uh, uh, Jeff Perlman is the author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. It's a fantastic book, and I recommend uh, anybody who has any interest in football whatsoever read it, and even other people as well, because there are some great stories in there about some really crazy people uh, from the, the early to mid-'80s. So, Jeff, thanks so much uh, for joining Gangry the podcast. Oh, thank you. Really, pleasure. I've been talking with Jeff Perlman. He is the author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. We've linked to that book and a lot of Perlman's other work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at gangrypodcast. Gangry is spelled G A N. G-R-E-Y. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.